1: From the Apostrophe
0: Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. I'm working on jealousy. I'm not into hate. I'm working on anger. Because I'm not into rage. There were and are hundreds of books worth reading on the subject of wilderness skills. And notice I didn't say survival skills, and I didn't say outdoor or adventure skills. I said wilderness. Because in the end, those of us who lust after the wilderness tend to combine all the skills we learn along the trail of life just to help keep us out there. But if, as a student, you boiled down your top three books, most of us would agree they are these. Bradford Angier's How to Stay Alive in the Woods, Larry Dean Olson's Outdoor Survival Skills, and Morse Kochansky's Northern Bushcraft. Throughout the growing, yet still niche, world of bushcraft and wilderness survival during the 1980s and 90s, these three books were our very own triad of gospels. We lost Bradford Angier in 1997, Larry Dean Olson in 2018, and Morse Kochansky passed a year ago on December 5th, 2019. In 2019, just before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to speak at a bushcraft symposium in Alberta, Canada. I had many reasons to go, but the most important to me was to finally meet and chat with the legendary Morris Kochansky. What follows is my interview with Morris, the last long-form interview he ever gave where we did not discuss firebows and lean-tos, but rather his life, his motivation, and his inspiration. For those of you aware of him, it may surprise you to discover that it was a Disney cartoon that set Morse on his path to becoming the legend in bushcraft skills he eventually was. Normally, I would say right now that if you're not into survival skills, maybe pass on this podcast. Yet that's not the case this time, for these are reflections of a 78-year-old man and what established his trail in life. Definitely worth a listen. These are the words of Morris Kochansky. The best thing I ever did, and the best time
1: of my life, was when I was in this high school in the Sea Cadets. Set
2: your goals high, cast your worries free. Life's too short not to try. Roads we've traveled, trails we've lost. Most times you don't know why. When I found out that uh, the
1: Woodchuck Manual was a figment of the imagination, I said, that leaves me the opportunity to write it.
0: I just want to know, first of all, just... Why? I know why I got into the skills when I was a kid. Why? Why did you even go down this road? You could have been 300 other things. Why Why these skills? Well, I brought up on a farm. I
1: had a brother who was eight years older who supplemented his income by trapping weasels and shooting coyotes and, and squirrels and stretching and... I, held, you know, I was eight years older, I followed him, and I guess he became the orthopedic surgeon and I became the fixated on the other doors. Not that I... I never did my own trapping, but I knew what was trapping was all about. He wore a great big hunting knife on his belt and so on. so. There was this, uh, a scout troop used to meet in the basement of the country school. I got interested. With all the materials, there was two other lads my age, and we discovered this cache of stuff of some previous scout troop. We lived, uh, uh, you know, the school was pasture, and we'd crawl under the fence. The teacher knew we were doing it. We're not supposed to. We had opportunities where we could go off of the school grounds. Where in the the country is this? This is uh, about 10 miles north of Prince Albert in Saskatchewan. Okay. And uh, we did a lot of that. Uh, there was like generally whatever was in a scout manual that grabbed our attention so we did those things so over the period of two years grade uh, seven and eight I'm sure either six seven and eight we devoured everything that was uh, all the, there was no cover no, there's no scout manuals or such but the pamphlets uh, everything about scouting was a pamphlet form and we would go through it whether it was knots. We even learned semaphore, the three of us. We, there was a pair of semaphore flags. And, I mean, and what I learned in those stood me in good stead for the rest of my life. The consequence was we were familiar with all the scouting stuff. In the city, uh, Prince Albert, there was an Eaton store, and they had a display case of everything a scout could buy. Well... My my buddies and I, we tried to buy stuff and they told us you must prove that you're scouts, you can't buy. So my buddies, grade eight, that was it there for their schooling, but I moved to the city. My father semi-retired and built a house so close to the high school that if I heard the bell ring, I could still make it in time for adversity with that sort of stuff. But anyway, the first thing that I did is join a scout troop. And I progressively got disenchanted. What year is this? Uh, 53, 52, 53. I came off the farm by the time you're in grade eight. You know, eight and five years, 13, 14. And and in the farming tradition belonging to a Polish family, you were pulling your load. I was plowing with horses. I was driving a combine. I had my own tractor. I joined the scout troop, and they're playing floor hockey with a stick and a ring. Uh, (laughs) In the church basement, right? Well, it was a basement of City Hall. Well, they ended up building their own scout hall right at the time where I spent, you know, maybe a few months in the basement uh, of the town hall, and then they moved, and that was our scout hall. And they accumulated a lot of junk, which we had to sort of sort. Uh, One thing that accumulated was a large number of uh, walking scout staffs. We had literature on what you do with the scout staff, although the interesting thing is the scout, no matter what size you're, your staff is the same size for whether you're the smallest or the, or the biggest person. In my university programs, the very first thing that a student acquired was a staff. Now, you can push off your canoe. You know, the staff has to be uh, rigid enough that if you pole vault, you don't break the staff. And, and, you know, when you need to do a lot of things, including pushing off with a pole instead of using your paddle and whatever. But anyway, I noticed that uh, people just love staffs, whether they were university students or whatever. And I thought, I'll cut a staff for everybody. And the scoutmaster was one of the outright twits that I shouldn't have been a mm. scoutmaster. He's probably in his late 20s. And when I brought the staffs, he tore a strip up and down on me for desecrating the forest. And they're all do that. He's all, the scouting movement was already changing that you don't... Relate to the forest already and, uh, in the fifties. Wow! Yeah, in, know, like was, in the you nineteen know, fifties, no campfires, and that, like he was sort of like, you should use a camp stove. Don't desecrate the forest by lighting a campfire. That was the a straw that broke the camel's back, and I got very disenchanted with that, with him giving me such a hard time. I said, I cut the poles off my father's land. I didn't cut it in a park. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where he came from. He should have known that you should be more gentle. But he wasn't very gentle with me. I got disenchanted. And uh, thanks to him, it's a long story, but I joined the Sea Cadets. I had three and a half miles to go to school. And there was sufficient highway that I collected beer bottles and pop bottles and I would collect three, $400 for the bottles. And the, one of the biggest breweries in Western Canada was the sixth brewery in Prince Albert. And when I turned those bottles in, I don't know what they give you today, but then it was 10 cents. 10 cents was two ice cream cones. <laughs> and yeah. 10 cents was probably uh, uh, admission to a movie. A lot of money. And, and I got this money and I, and I priced everything in that case. And the moment I qualified, I bought one of each <laughs> I still have, you know, the things that I bought there, the, the axe sheath and the hatchet and the, and the scout, knife you know, everything, the whole uniform. And then uh, shortly after, I got rather disenchanted for a variety of reasons. Like, one, they discouraged you wearing the uniform. I joined to wear the uniform. I didn't join to not wear the uniform. I lived in town a year, and I knew that the Catholic uh, school or whatever was where the Army cadets met and the army cadets attitude was such that uh, anybody not an army cadet seemed to be taken as the enemy and so we sort of felt the army cadets were bullies and uh, criminals and i would never join the army cadet i found that if you uh, uh join the air cadets you could uh, conceivably graduate in grade 12 with a pilot's license and then i when i approached my father who was in the Polish army was probably strafed a great deal by airplanes. He saw an airplane crash and the pilot was killed. And he would he said, "No way, you're going to join." I got around it by taking the fleet arm course in Halifax. Uh, the situation was, uh, I was left with sea cadets, and it happened that the commanding officer was a house between ours and his. If I saw him working in the backyard, I'd go and help him dig. You know, that's. It was a good thing because he got to know me, and I—I I would say that he, that I became one of his favorite cadets, because I was kind of really spit and polish on the night you met. If you weren't wearing your uniform, that was hell to pay. If you didn't have a good excuse, that's what I liked, you know. Mm. And the complexity of the sailor's uniform with its folds and, and pleats and the, the commemoration of the Battle of Nile and Trafalgar and Copenhagen. And oh, <laughs> that was right down my alley. Huh. Uh, so when I would help the one time, uh, I'm uh, helping him dig in the garden. And I said, Mr. Hood, uh, those coveralls, are they pusser? Of course, it means, are they issued? And, uh, you know, until then, I didn't know his background that much. And he says, well, I don't exactly know if they're issued because I found those uh, coveralls in the Scranlocker on the Niobe. Scranlocker is the lost and found. And I said, the Niobe? Because I already knew that was the very first ship that the Canadian Navy acquired. Well, he was on the Niobe. He, he was kind of young. He was started as a boy seaman, and the Canadians bought it, and there was enough British uh, sailors to teach the Canadians how to you know, conduct, so half the crew was probably British. He was one of them, and the run was from Murmansk to Liverpool, to Murmansk, which was not a, like a... It was a dangerous route at the time in the Second World War sort of thing. Uh, so here, at twit of a scoutmaster... <laughs> Here is the real... The real deal. Uh, the, the commanding officer of the Sea Cadet Corps, who is is like, and he was in, uh, renowned because he's involved in the recruitment programs in the prairies. Because the Navy found that it's better to recruit in the prairies. You get less problems training, whereas the coastal people they're they're just harder to teach because they think they know everything. Uh, whereas the prairie the people would come and, and and say, "Well, I, I I can't honestly say I know anything about sailing. Teach me." <laughs> so when my experience in the Sea Cadets got me to the Pacific coast and the Atlantic coast. And the sailors were exceptionally, uh, you know, here you're a cadet. You're wearing exactly the same uniform.
0: If you're really keen, it's easy to impress them. I can see what you're saying about, you know, going from the twit of the leader and then seeing a real man and a real... A real role model in a way. So, so in many ways, then, uh, this was your first role model, your first real yeah, model. Well, uh, maybe your father and your brother, but. Yeah, I would say that probably the
1: best thing I ever did and the best time of my life was when I was
2: in this high school in the Sea Cadets. I've heard of you, you haven't heard of me. Sit down, I'll tell you why. Life is natural, life is free to be who you are. Roads we've traveled, trails we've lost, most times you don't know why. Sometimes gamble. Sometimes lost And I've been thinking I just want to be high In the great blue sky I think of you Do you ever think of me On a warm summer's night Left in April 1983. We both thought it right. Roads we've traveled, trails we've lost. Most times you don't know why. Sometimes gamble. Sometimes lost And I've been thinking I've just got to be high In the great blue sky Natural, at least it used to be. Don't let your dreaming die. Set your goals high, cast your worries free. Life's too short not to try. Roads we've traveled, trails we've lost. Most times you don't know why Sometimes gambled Sometimes lost And I've been thinking I just want to be high In the great blue sky
0: You're surviving life with Les Stroud.
1: In our tradition, if you came to visit a family, you know, it'd take two and a half hours to drive 10 miles to go to town to shop. But when people would come to visit, like at Christmas, very often the family that would come to visit left enough people to continue The farm, you know, the milking and whatever had to be done if there was such a thing. Uh, And they would come, and two or three families would, you know, we'd take our turns. And so when they came to our farm, we,
0: all of the kids, slept in the hayloft. Even though that, no, that wasn't uh, camping out by the riverside, but when you're young, it kind of is. There's still a mystique to what's, this is a special thing, it's the time in the hayloft, you know, and it's a change. Regardless of anything, it's a change in what you're normally doing. The camp out we had when I was
1: part of the scout troop was uh, during Easter when the ice was still on the lakes and it was sort of melted. You'd have to wait, get on the ice. You could walk on the ice. And I most certainly did not bring enough sleeping here. Oh, no. <laughs> and I, uh, it wasn't very structured. And then as I, how miserable I was, I wandered around and I learned a lot from the fact that I examined the experience. They had tents and they had bags and they had blankets. So, my unrealistic idea was like to sleep out in the bush. But I, you know, well, I was saying, I mean, we, once we, uh, my father and I made a trip and we loaded a wagon with two horses. My father worked in the construction of the highway to Waskasu, which was a national park. There's a book written about it. They call it the park prisoners. All the people that needed welfare. And they would send them to work for room and board to build the parks and build the roads. My father uh, was paid to build the bunkhouses, the cabins, uh, every eight miles. He was ahead of the construction because when you, uh, uh, the barns for the horses and the place for the, the crew, you worked four miles. From each direction. And when you got that, you lipped ahead and you got that, and four miles in each direction. So that was my father built, he was uh, skilled in log cabin building. And we toured that. My father was keen to see that happened in the early 30s. And uh, I was probably 1944 or something like that.
0: When you were born? I was four years old. Four years, okay. You know,
1: I was born in 1940. So uh, we loaded up the wagon to sleep in. And, of course, we, uh, we were able to camp just by draping the canvases over the, the boxes. So, so that's how we traveled. And we were probably gone two weeks. Yeah. And he toured. Almost all the buildings were still intact because the tar paper roof roofing material was sturdy enough. So that, that was the, about the only weird camping that I might have done. In retrospect, we never purposely
0: went and slept out in the bush. Morris, I think often with individuals even like yourself, and maybe some other people have perpetrated this, which is why it happens, other people look at, say, your story, and we want it's like they want the cliché. They want to know you were raised by someone named Yellow Cloud, and you sat by a river, and you were, you know, wolves came and tended your diapers kind of thing, you know, when in fact... You had a, your father was Polish, you're sleeping in in haylofts, and this is your influential upbringing, not out on a horse in the wild hills somewhere. Well, my father
1: uh, would disappear in the winter, and he would come back, well, a week or two, to some remote lake and fish jackfish. Essentially, those jackfish were as long as the diameter of a 45-gallon drum. So the jackfish... Was in the snow, jackfish, actually, till barrel. He'd come back. If I remember, we'd have about three barrels full of jackfish, wow. and of course Friday, you know, you you perish in hell if you ate meat on Friday, so you had to eat fish. My mother would disappear, which we noticed uh, that you know it was not very often that she wasn't around to do the cooking, but she and a whole bunch of local women would go to the blueberry country, and there was these beautiful butter boxes. And they're about yay big, yay big. They're like a cube. And they packed the butter in that. The amount of butter is close to, you know, taxing your limit to lift that box Mm -hmm. full of. And she would come back with pretty well the wagon box, maybe 20 boxes of blueberries. And then of course the blueberries were, we didn't have refrigeration, so the blueberries had to be canned. And there was, we depended on saskatoons and raspberries. We had our own garden. You milk cows, a dozen or more, every day, twice a day, and you accumulated the cream. And to keep the cream cool, you had an ice house. And near the well, every time you the the water table was probably eight ten feet, and every time you went to get a pail of water, you threw three or four pails or well, you know, you, until you got tired. And then over the winter, you cruised a, a cube that's probably ten by ten by ten of ice from being the water thrown in. And then it was super insulated and it was buried in the ground and there was a lot of snow. Then when the next winter arrived, there was still ice. And you would dig back the shavings or sawdust and you put the cream can directly on the ice and it would tend to melt
0: its way, you know, fairly deeply. Uh, and then Saturday we delivered the cream. Would you be one of... The uh, the milkers did you have all the duties as well with well, were, it there, were there work that I, farm workers?
1: I did milk. I knew milk, but uh, my mother and older brother. There was a lot to be done while they were milking. I would get the cows into the barn, and I, you know, in the winter time they stayed out overnight. I mean, all night in the barn. The cows were given a certain amount of uh, chop to attract them to, you know, again, yeah, you put this chain around their neck before they finished eating what was in the... It seemed that I occasionally was asked to milk, but it wasn't... That wasn't my duty. My duty was, was seeing to everything else, which was uh, making sure that the watering trough was full, uh, that uh, I fed the chickens and I fed the
0: pigs. See, this speaks to what what something I've been talking about earlier when discussing uh, survival skills versus bushcraft skills versus primitive earth technology, and I, you know I, I said you know when, the thing about bushcraft and primitive earth technology to me, of course the dovetailing happens in terms of survival pulls from them, but they were always about thriving in the wilderness, not just getting by and surviving and eating bugs, but thriving, and. I follow that by saying, case in point, you need a community, because not everybody's good at everything. And that guy can make snowshoes like nobody's business. He's the snowshoe maker. Yeah. This, this guy comes back with a deer every time. Well, he's the main hunter, you know. She, he, they, and by default, discover who's good at what, and you learn to share and respect and admire who's good at what, and, and divvy up the duties sort of thing. Yeah. And there's no difference on the farm, of course. I had
1: my horse, I rode that horse till I think my legs are slightly bowed because I rode horseback. We never got a vehicle till I was probably twelve. At the time we moved to town, that's when we acquired a car.
0: So we mid, a mid-fifties we're talking about. Yeah, yeah.
1: and um, uh, we didn't have electricity. Uh, we discovered that there was a freezer locker. So when you butchered a pig, it was quite hectic processing that pig. It's kind of a race of processing the meat before it got to spoil. But when we found for a number of years, we cut the meat and immediately took it to the locker and was frozen. And you had your own key. You know, you paid uh, paid for having the locker. So when you went shopping periodically, you go to the locker, take the meat out that you need
0: on, for a week. And then eventually you got electricity. So take me on a, on the journey from here's Morse. Kochanski, seaman, loving the uh, connection to um, Captain Hood, uh, learning from first your father, then this gentleman as a mentor. Where we are now, that's a, that's a hell of a journey. Why did you feel this connection to stick with the wilderness? Why? Maybe I can learn well, from Well,
1: I that. had three and a half miles to go. I was the only one in that direction after the first half mile. So the three miles, I'm alone. Sometimes, well, by the time you walk three and a half miles, it's dark. It's to school and back. To right? school and back in the winter. In the summer, there is all kinds of creatures that you got to think about. There's wolves, there's coyotes, there's deer. You see a deer and you're saying, is that a wolf or a deer? Do I continue? You know, stuff like that. Grouse. If you got too close, then they flew at your head because uh, you got too close to the chicks. There was there was a constant barrage and experience with the wildlife,
0: which had a big influence on uh, you, know, you know. I'm just going to interrupt you because you just touched on something I've never really considered before that that with that three and a half mile walk, nowadays those things don't exist. The journey's lost. The well, journey doesn't exist. My,
1: for most uh, I considered that my. Uh, very good health was seemed to be connected from the fact that those first years of school that I walked three and a half miles a day there and three and a half
0: miles a day back. Sounds like a bad joke, actually. I walked uphill three no. and a half miles well, in Tennessee to snow. Know, well, but, yeah. but it was, you really yeah, did. Well, <laughs> yeah, well,
1: yeah, well, we didn't wrap our feet with barbed wire to get a better grip. <laughs> we didn't. Uh, we had all those. So, the people, well, of course, yep. there's people that sort of... Uphill uh, both ways. Yeah, well... No, it was, uh, it was in Saskatchewan uh, where I lived. You couldn't find a hill to ski down. There was no, it was just so flat that, uh, that it was quite disappointing to try to find some place where you could glide a little bit. But we used skis, but what, there was no hill to glide down. Do you attribute your lifelong good health to this wilderness connection? Well, I think uh, walking to school every day was probably at the time that a growing person It's just the right time to be walking. Uh, You know, all my life I was quite fit. Mm -hmm. And then I walked a lot. It appears I wore my legs out.
0: (laughs) We're at a bushcraft symposium. It's a gathering of a lot of like-minded people. We're all living in our perfect bushcraft bubble at the moment, you know, and everybody's talking the same language, loving the same ideals. You've dedicated a life to this. Obviously, your writings and your videos as well. Why? why? Why bother? What is it you're trying to get across to the world or, or the youth or the adults? Why, why do you do it? I thought it would be a neat
1: way to make a living mm-hmm. because, I, you know, when I, high, in high school summer, remembering grade 11, I decided that I would like to be a writer. Then it took a while. What am I going to write about? Actually, initially, I was, I was impressed, you know, like uh, Playboy and Penthouse. You got more words. You got accepted by the more, more pennies per per word. You know, like Hemingway at the time, he wrote an article for uh, um, Sports Illustrated, and he had the record of grading the greatest amount of money for a single article on boxing. And, you know, and I said it was like thousands of dollars that, that he got. Well, Harold Robbins was a writer that was current, and I'm reading that when Harold Robbins wrote a book, and then he had the next contract to write the next one. He had a $3 million advance. (laughs) I said, he was so popular and the the publishing houses made so much money. He's getting, so before he writes it, so now he can take his time. And He wrote maybe that many books. But I sort of got an insight into uh, the issue of how you make a living writing. It seemed that uh, popular ranch romance and and those sort of magazines, they suffered from the fact that they couldn't get enough writers, and so uh, they they were almost paying as much as Penthouse, and and the the standard of writing reflected that. So I thought, well, I'll take sociology and psychology and everything else that would uh, get insights into the human nature and everything, and while I was going to university, uh, that I would prepare myself to, uh, you know, I, I figured you become a writer by studying the art of writing. Take writing classes, register in the university courses. You know, I went spent two years in military college. My favorite subject was language arts and writing and all that. And when I ended up at the university in Sask- Saskatoon, the professor that I was in the class, he was quite impressed Because I learned, don't misspell, start a paragraph with a leading sentence, everything like that. And so he had the habit
0: of reading the best, and I often was the one who read to class. Were these outdoor-themed things that you write about because that was a natural part of you, or was it all across the board?
1: actually, it took a while that, like, it never occurred to me maybe to write for something like Sports Afield or Outdoor Life. The people think I'm joking, but probably it had something to do with Huey, Louie, and Dewey. <laughs> the uh, the situation was I was familiar with scout manuals, and I really liked the layout. That a little bit of stars, a bit of plants, a bit of animals, a bit of camping, a bit of everything that a scout should know, and whatever. Well, anyway, Huey, Louie, and Dewey, when they went camping, they uh, took a manual with them. It's called the woodchuck manual. Now I had an objective. When I found out that the the Woodchuck Manual was a figment of the imagination, I said, that leaves me the opportunity to write it. (laughs) And so I began collecting. Well, you know, it's like an almanac or everything you need to know to do well in the bush so you could use it as a manual. Uh, That that was like the whole objective in the outdoor uh, uh, ed movement, that here's a clear description uh, how to put properly put up a lean-to, or properly light a fire, or properly use the knife safely—all that sort of stuff—that's in any youth manual, whether it's Scouts or Guides. Or that's where I began to amass, buy every book. By the time I met Tom, I had a pretty um, a large library, and I was familiar with all the Tom. Tom who? Tom Roycroft. Okay. He was my—he was the senior civilian survival instructor at the RCF Survival School north of Hinton. And I, when I met him, I became his understudy. And between the two of us, I had the books. When I met Tom, I was really curious. I drove by the gate of the survival school. And actually, as I drove by, I was intimidated not to go in out of curiosity. But when it was survival school, Department of National Events Survival School, I said, school? That means teachers, <laughs> instructors. So actually that's the thought that came into my mind, not necessarily saying, oh, I will establish a school to teach survival. No, it was the issue of, uh, I was intrigued. And out of curiosity, I met Tom. Well, I found that this is the down but not out. I was familiar with that already, but I became his understudy. And now he's he's 12 years older than me. He was a voracious reader. You know, I'm 78 years old. And I figured that I, I'm not talking too senile here. I, I'm th- as old as I am because I read a lot, and that reading keeps my mind limber. And it would be even more limber if I did calligraphy to you know, things like that. I've gotten kind of lazy the last few years, but I should have written four bushcraft, two bushcraft, three bushcraft, four. And it would be very similar because I have the materials. <laughs>
0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. I'm guessing that you probably get asked a lot about, well, what do you think of these guys today? What do you think of these instructors today? And what do you think of the television stuff, of course, which... Uh, without Survivor Man, it might be a different story. I will say this: uh, for me, I had the sim- a very similar moment um, with you, with Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and discovering there's no manual. I looked and I discovered there's no very good film work on the subject matter, and that's where I came from first. But I do want to kind of ask you just a m- sort of you know final question in a way. But are you proud of what you've done and the legacy you've created? Oh yeah. Uh, Well, I find it curious
1: that I get recognized so much for simply teaching people how to light a campfire and how to build a a lean-to, essentially. So as I look at the literature, if there's anything that's kind of poorly done, it's in the field. See, I reached a certain point where I discovered I could make a decent living if I was an outdoor educator teaching teachers how to teach outdoor skills, how to teach the teachers that if you're going to talk survival, it better be modern and sensible. And if things didn't work 50 years ago, they still don't work. You uh, you don't use old, uh, uh, unpolished knowledge that is better available. My focus would be more, what can I do for the children between kindergarten and grade 12 in the outdoor education sense? So whatever you do has to be sort of Um, slanted, you know, like for example, you build a lean-to. Well, uh, if you were to do it right, you would cover everything an architect has to know to build a house, thermal mass, reflectivity, emissivity, you know, like building an igloo. Well all the things the complexity for an igloo to work isn't just a dome right. that benches at the right height you got to have an overhead volume and if you make it wrong the top will melt out and the, the temperature at the floor is the same temperature as outside and on and on and and then it occurred to me I said is it possible that you could build a shelter that emulates all the features the igloo has without using snow and then I realized Uh, that generally a greenhouse participates in that too. So if you have a window and you have a fire or the sun that lets the warmth into that, so you got to study the principles. It's a marriage of how to build uh, snow houses and, and greenhouses. And if you take the science behind that, well, it works. Now, how do you do that for kindergarten? I developed a program called Tangible Education, Whatever education, elementary school kids, it has to involve their hands. The amount of the control of your hands uh, takes a very enormous part of the brain. And so humans uh, think things out, learn things, and they use their hands to build a radio or make a, a ship or whatever, it's through the hands. So I saw this kind of um, you know representation about how much of the brain is assigned to the to the hands, and also uh, encountered a story where um, people noticed that the most eminent surgeons in the eastern states, if you looked into their background, they were more likely than not raised on a farm, and it seemed like having been raised on a farm seemed to have to do with the fact that they were so skilled as surgeons. Well, people say, "Well, maybe it was that butchering animals." (laughs) no, you have to use your hands. You're a farm kid. You're weeding. You're making things. You're raking. You're milking. You're you have so so to develop your brain fully, your hands participate rather seriously in that. You can't really develop the brain if you don't, you know, do a wide variety of. Uh, manipulations and so on. So I thought, well, that's the way I'm going to structure this type of uh, presentation of of bringing nature into the school. So like, for example, kindergarten kids, they get to start with, you know, like you you usually have to set up something where you know it's the beginning and the end. So 12 things that I give you go into an egg carton. And it might be a seashell, it might be a pebble, it might be a it might be quartzite, it might be shale, it might be uh flint and on and and you see the uh, you find that the kindergarten kids they respond to that, they can manage that, they appreciate and and you know they go for a walk in the local creek and they come back and said, oh, I learned all that. that sandstone, that's sandstone. And there are all kinds of things. There might be things that smell horrible. Uh, there might be a porcupine quill. There would be a a, a chip from a uh, beaver works. There would be sawdust from a carpenter ant. There would be chips from pileated woodpecker and all the nature history behind it. You know, like the pileated woodpecker, everybody says, how can that creature the size of a crow hammer so hard on wood for such big chips without damaging its brain. So some scientists looked it up and came to, you know. Well, another scientist later on saw the work and he used it to produce a far better bicycle helmet as what they found out about the
0: mechanism that the woodpecker used. And I, so I'm, seeing, I'm seeing the story flow through here from a child getting a, a woodpecker chip in the wood, putting it in an egg cart and bringing it back in with the other 11 items, going through it, and then being told that, did you know that, that woodpeckers yeah. helped, helped us to develop a better yes. bicycle helmet like the one you have in the corner right now? Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, that's what you endeavor. I always would say, I would earn my plumber's wages if I could talk 15 minutes about this object. You know, the kids... We'd sort of say, wow, that's, that's neat mm-hmm. that the woodpecker had something to do with the bicycle helmet I'm wearing. <laughs> I asked this old native woman, I said, you know, all the things you find in the forest, what is at the top of the list? And she said, well, no one's asked me a question like that. I need time, I need time to sort of mull it over. And then the next time I saw her, two weeks, she gives me this fungus. And she says, as far as I could tell, I would say as I thought about it, this must be at the very top of the list, and it was diamond with a fungus. It had the property that the most fierce headache, including uh, migraines and so on, if you breathed in the smoke from the fungus, you would uh, stop the pain. But at the same time, if you had a lot of estrogen in your system, it made you very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that same fungus, in the tradition of the coastal native people, there's this picture of this marvelous argillite carving. And here is a fungus man in well, front of the boat, raven man in the back, and they're paddling. And the caption says, raven man and fungus man looking for female genitalia. That's what it was like. This is the fertility that, that it has got to do with that issue of uh, the continuance of mankind through the, through the uh, activities of men and women to procreate and whatever, so that was the legend. I had this fungus, it wasn't very big, and I encountered uh, snow blindness on a, on a spring event, at a, at a, at, and I got too much sun, and now I, I, I'm, I, I can't think. I just said, uh, oh, I've got that fungus, and I never verified it, but she had said it would cure a headache. and I, So I lit it, and I breathed, and much to my surprise, in about five minutes, and it came back in a while, but I did it again, the third time it didn't come back, but I didn't have the symptoms of snow blindness. That, that, that's the power of, of that fungus, you might say. Old native people from the old style, they feel uncomfortable if they're buried without that piece of fungus in the coffin and a, a pipe. And, you know, when I discuss this with Tom, he says, no, they don't care who makes it as long as it's a pipe made out of the proper rock. I make them quite often for Southern Native people, and I use electric gels and everything, and they're very happy to get this pipe because I could do it so fast as a gift
0: rather than being commissioned and charged. That's actually an interesting point, something that, that I've always liked to kind of touch on a bit is, is just de-romanticizing certain things, you know, and and discovering, and with Aboriginal cultures, and traditional Native cultures, uh, they, they de-romanticize as well. If you'd sit down and talk with them. As an example, I, I was uh, with the um, Mantua in Indonesia, and I was getting tattooed and the ceremonies with the shamans, and they're all tattooed up and down. And, I, and so I, I thought, oh, I'm going to get the scoop and I, on the story. And I, I asked the shaman, I said, uh, what is it so special about all this tattooing that you do? And, and he just sort of, he just goes, we think it looks nice. That was it. my office. I was expecting a big interview and he goes, we think it looks nice. Where do you hope that this all goes or continues to go?
1: I think uh, in my own case, uh, I've had the opportunity to try to teach teachers how to introduce nature to children. Uh, average teachers, they don't spontaneously acquire that knowledge. And I find that the, what I do uh, seems to fit the bill. The teachers in British Columbia have a lot of money to spend on kindergarten kids, and they just don't know how to spend it. Yeah. And something as simple as going to the local creek and finding uh, all, you know, look around. and Oh, I can provide that class with this stone, the same looking stone. And, uh, and the kindergarten kids are just ecstatic that they, they absorb that and they enjoy that. And when they walk, uh, you know, and they naturally play in that very creek, I think it makes a big difference. When I was going to school, elementary school, uh, there were certain things that intrigued me. One of the things that was really deficient was how hard it was to get uh, plant identification books. And I sort of say to myself, boy, at that age when I was five years old, I sure would have liked, uh, you know, and I'd say, well, I would assume kids are still have that craving, you might say, or whatever, and the kids are, respond positively. It's like they they can't get enough of it, mainly because the the school system and the parents just don't realize or
0: or, or can fulfill that requirement i think we can bemoan and bitch about modern technology and the cell phones and the video games and on and on that's all we do now is we oh, these kids and there's too many video games and too much cell phone well how about we just don't care about that and just show them some shale (laughs) well in school you know for a teacher to do what i was
1: doing collecting materials that teacher would have to be given the time or take the time on their own to be able to do a good job, to go out. So maybe the kids should stay at home one day <laughs> every two weeks so the teacher
0: would go gather all the materials they're gonna use for the next two weeks and be paid for it. You just made a million teacher friends with that comment right there. So, I agree uh, with you. Yeah. So the
1: issue is you're willing, but uh, uh, you know, the tyranny of the uh, curriculum and all kinds of other dictates, uh, you know, as a non-teacher, and I didn't get a teaching degree and so on, I could have way more influence on what is taught to kids as an outsider, because that's the way it operates. And so it's a specialty. I was probably four years old. I think I might be able to identify 25 mushrooms or or more Mm -hmm. because my parents wanted to pick them and we say, that's the mushroom, that's the mushroom. And when you brought them to the house, If you picked the wrong mushroom, they threw it out. They were, you know, that's the wrong mushroom. I don't know what mushroom that is, but you're familiar with it. And if you had the right book, very shortly you would have the name, but the book wasn't there. To compare myself to other people that are trying to get in this field, it just happened that a lot of that sort of stuff came naturally. And so by the time you start school in grade one, you can recognize, you know, 50 mushrooms because your parents demand that you pick them Mm -hmm. under their direction. This Blue Lake Center that I worked at, so I taught survival, natural crafting, mountain walking, backpacking. Then one day they phoned me and said the mycologist can't come and we have a full class and it would be uh, disappointing for them to us to cancel. Can you take the course? Well, I sort of thought, uh, yeah, I probably can. (laughs) Because I, I knew so many mushrooms that if you used a key, which I didn't know how to use the key, so I would, the group, you know, I would say something, anybody know how to use a key? Well a group like that, there's usually somebody. Mm -hmm. Or you could say, hey, anybody here know what this mushroom is? (laughs) If I don't outright know it at all, Mm -hmm. the likelihood is one of those, that class, the person knows. They don't join up a mushroom uh, course uh, uh, raw. They've worked with mushrooms and they discovered that they maybe progress better if they take a class and formalize their knowledge. And so I say, let's, you know how to use a key, because I don't know how to use a key. I don't say that. I said, anybody knows how to use a key, let's key this mushroom. I know what it is, but I don't tell them. Meanwhile, by the time I go through that sort of thing in a while, I can use that key. So that student's teaching me, but he doesn't realize that I'm orchestrating. And if it's not the correct mushroom, I know it. But if it's a crack
0: mushroom, we now have bingo. We have... <laughs> you don't let on. that You don't know. You, you're you actually learning from the student in that moment.
1: And the student figures that you know the mushroom,
0: but you're yeah. playing as if you don't to help us be able to use the key better. But then they feel proud because they're able to help. Yeah. I mean, that's time in the field versus book learning. Someone asked about two hours ago about using electronic books or audio books and Kindles and instead of paper books. And my comment when it came for me to chance to answer was, look, there's no reason for us to be Luddites about this. Sure, there's going to be some wrong stuff shown on YouTube, on the internet, but there's also wrong stuff in the written form too. You know, so when it's the right stuff and it's good, who cares if it's a new modern technology that's sharing it? You know, I'm, I'm recording you on digital modern technology. You know, and this used to be a tape recorder, you know, the spinning wheels. And, and that's a big thing for me, is, is just being wide open to all the ways to learn. But anchored with being out there, with actually touching, tasting, feeling, smelling, hearing. Well, thank you very much, Morris. I appreciate your time greatly. Before I even hatched the idea to put survival on TV, I had contacted Morris Kochansky to discuss my plans to live in the woods for a year. He was ever the gentleman and full of tips and advice that would help keep me alive during the year I spent living out in the wilderness of the Wabakimi area in northern Canada in 1994. Every shelter I ever made, every skill I ever taught, every fire I ever started, every trap I ever set, or wild plant I ever gathered was an extension of the learning I did under the tutelage of Bradford Angier Larry Dean Olson, and Morse Kochanski. Some guy named Keith Ullman hides out in a tiny little room, hovered over his computer system, operating something called Pro Tools to engineer this podcast. And we are a member of the Apostrophe Podcast Network, a company apparently named after a punctuation mark. Keep listening, everyone. We'll figure this out. Oh, hey, wait a second. Sorry. One more thing. Totally forgot. This is my moment of shameless self-promotion. But if you are not yet watching my brand new series, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest, well, you need to. It's all about local foraging, and then I'll go out and I'll show you a number of plants, and I'll bring them back into a kitchen or a cookery outdoors or somewhere where Chef Paul Rogalski will turn them into an incredible meal. You got to see this show, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest. It's airing now on a public television station near you. And if the public television station near you is not airing it, then email them, phone them, show up on their doors, blackmail them, do whatever you have to do to get Les Stroud's Wild Harvest on their station so that you can watch it. The second part of the self-promotion is for this channel, if you're watching this, and if you're not, this channel is, the YouTube channel, survivorman lest Stroud. I have a ton of stuff on there. I really got on the game for YouTube about six or eight months ago, and I have been populating it with all kinds of material. New stuff, archive stuff, all kinds of information from how-tos to Survivorman episodes to Survivorman Bigfoot to director's commentary. So check out my YouTube channel, survivorman lest Stroud, because I am keeping it really, really active. So brand new series, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest. Don't forget my YouTube channel. And lastly... We are going back into the, uh, the printers, and by popular request, releasing again my 20th anniversary film collection. 76 films, every film I have made over the past 20, actually 25 years, to be honest with you, but 20 years. And it's available through the website, lestroud.ca. All right. Um, okay. I guess that's it. Thanks a lot for listening. And, uh, I don't know, go pour yourself a coffee and go listen to some more of my podcasts, if you so choose. Thanks, guys.
2: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.